The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. All right, all right. How are we doing this morning, Axe Leander? Hey, I'm really happy to be back with you guys this morning. My name is Matt Tolander. If you don't know me, uh, I'm usually up here playing guitar right here, and occasionally uh, they'll ask me to speak, and it's nice to be given a little bit of rope. We'll see if I swing or hang on it this morning. Um, I'll be really honest with you. I don't have like any kind of funny story or cool opener or clever hook or anything to open the message this morning. All right, I just have the Word of God, um, and I've been in it this week and preparing this week and i got to admit to you, I've just been so challenged and so affected by the stuff that I've been learning this week just in my study. So, I mean, I'm not coming this morning uh, as an expert or anything like that. I'm coming this morning as someone who's just been really deeply moved by the Word this week. Um, I want to share it with you. We're in Romans 12, so if you have a Bible with you, got your smartphone or it'll be up on the screen, we're in Romans 12. We're just going to talk about the first two verses. I know Josh read the first four, but you know, I got through the first two and I was like, whoa, time's up. Like, they're not going to let me go for an hour on Sunday morning. So um, we're just going to look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Paul opens up chapter 12 of this letter and he's making a very, very strong request. He says, I appeal to you. He's making the strongest request that he could possibly make. Other translations say, I urge you. He says, I urge you, brothers. He's urging us, begging us to take action in our life in response to something else. And that something is the mercy of God. That's our context for our text this morning. It's the mercy of God. We cannot overlook that. Paul has spent 11 chapters so far in this letter to the Christians in Rome, explaining the mercy of God that God has for all people. Paul says in Romans 1.16, it's the key verse of Romans, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, evidently, Paul had some sort of opponent or some sort of detractor in Rome who's whispering in the church's ear and is causing some division. He's saying, look, Paul hasn't been to visit you yet. It must be because he's ashamed of his message. And Paul writes to them, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who will believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And he goes on in the first 11 chapters of Romans to just outline in incredible, incredible detail that mankind is alienated from God and that no one is righteous in and of themselves, that we can't make ourselves righteous by keeping the law, and that we are without hope for salvation. And then into the, in the midst of that utter hopelessness and our utter inability, God steps in and Paul says he demonstrated his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And so now there's an incredible opportunity in front of people who've put their trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and who trusted in the mercy of God. Paul says they're, they're no longer under the law, they're under grace. They're no longer dead to sin, they're alive to God. And that offer of forgiveness and mercy and redemption is open to everybody, Jew and Gentile, because Paul says in Romans, uh, in Romans 10, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul spends 11 chapters of this letter just meditating on the magnitude of God's mercy toward those who trust him. And it's that incredible mercy that is going to form the basis and the foundation and the context for what Paul is going to ask of these people in this letter, and I think what he's asking of us this morning. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable or pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, when Paul says bodies, what he means by bodies is he means your entire life. He means the, the totality of your life and your activities uh, in this world. He says the only reasonable response, the only thing that makes sense in response to this monumental mercy of God is just to put everything on the table. All my thoughts, all my words, all my actions, all my preferences, and my desires, and all of my ambitions. He says, that's when worship happens. That's when worship happens that is pleasing and that is acceptable to God. So worship doesn't happen like when I show up to church on Sunday mornings, and I sing some songs, and I hear somebody give a message, and I take communion, and then I leave, and I just go about living my life totally and completely unaffected by the mercy of God. That's not when worship happens. Worship doesn't happen when I go through the motions of the Christian life. That's not a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. It's not a sacrifice that's acceptable to God. Paul says worship happens when I allow the mercy and the grace of God to collide with my heart and my soul in such a way uh, that I want to yield my entire life to him, not just my Sunday mornings, not just my small group night, not just like the Christian compartment of my life. That's the kind of sacrifice that Paul says is pleasing to God. And the word present is really important here in verse 1. The, the idea of presenting, it's a, it's a procedural word. So if you were a Jewish person, you're living under the sacrificial system, and you're bringing a sacrifice to God. You show up at the temple, you've got your animal, your sheep, or your oxen, or your dove, or whatever. You bring it before the priest. You put it on the altar, but you don't take your hands off it. The priest would then step up to the altar, and he would then put his hands on the offering as well, and he would inspect it. And if the offering was acceptable, then there would be a moment where your hands are on the offering, and the priest's hands are on the offering, and then you do this. And you take your hands off, and you step back. And that's what it means to present. For them, it meant that they were hand handing the offering over to the priest. We have a great high priest. And so for us, it means that we're, we're taking our hands off, and our offering is not an animal. Our offering is ourselves. When we take our hands off. We hand ourselves over to Jesus to do with our lives whatever he pleases. So Paul goes on to explain how this works practically. I mean, if I want to live a life and offer myself up as a living sacrifice to God to be pleasing to him, what needs to happen? Paul says this. He says, uh, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewal of your mind. Two commands, one positive, one negative, separated in the middle by a contrasting conjunction. First commands, do not be conformed to this world. The Greek there for this world, it literally means this age or this present world. Paul's saying don't buy into the prevailing cultural thought, the prevailing cultural wisdom, the prevailing cultural attitude. Paul has already explained in the book of Romans what the present world was like uh, for his audience there all the way back in chapter 1. He says the people don't acknowledge God, they don't worship God, they don't obey God, they don't trust God, they don't value God. And so God's response to that in what's called his passive wrath is that he gave them over to uh, what Paul calls in chapter 1, verse 28, a debased mind. A debased mind. Now, I think that our verse this morning, chapter 12, verse 2, is a callback verse to chapter 1, verse 28. I think that Paul means to contrast the renewed mind in chapter 12 with the debased mind that he mentioned in chapter 1. And so we ought to take some time to talk this morning about what the debased mind is, uh, what it does, what the result of having a debased mind is, and what the danger is in having one. So here's the context of that. Romans 1, 28 and following, Paul writing, he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, there's our word, to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. They invent new ways of doing evil. They're disobedient to their parents. They're foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The phrase debased mind in 128 could be translated worthless mind. The people refuse to acknowledge God, and so God basically says, look, if you don't want to acknowledge me, if you're not going to value me, if you won't worship me, if you're not willing to do life on, on my terms and do life with me, then I'll take my hands off and you can have it your way. That's what it means when it says that God gave them over to this worthless mind. And from that worthless mind, all of this horrifying destruction comes pouring out. I think Paul's concern in Romans 12, 1 and 2, this was his concern for them. I think it's God's concern for us this morning. Paul's concern is that there will be believers, saved people who claim the name of Jesus, who are content to live their life with a worthless mind and with a debased mind. I know he's talking about believers and saved people because he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. That's a clue word that indicates who Paul had in mind, who his audience was when he wrote this passage. He says, I don't want you to live your life with a worthless mind and be conformed to the world. You've got to be transformed. Now, in what sense is the mind worthless? 
not in the sense that, uh, that they're not smart, not in the sense that they're not sharp or that they're not quick or that they're not intelligence, intelligent, uh, but worthless in the sense that in their mind they don't acknowledge God and they don't worship God. They don't contemplate the things of God. They're not learning to think the way that God thinks about the world. And they're not considering the ways in which they might utilize their talents and their time and their resources to serve God in the kingdom. So the contrast here between a debased mind and a renewed mind is the contrast between a worthless mind and a profitable mind. A worthless mind and a profitable mind. Paul is not saying... And listen really, really carefully, because this is, this is kind of theologically nuanced, and so you need to pay special attention right here. Listen very, very, very carefully to what I'm saying right now. Paul is not saying, and the Bible is not teaching, and I am not telling you that the difference between having a debased mind and a renewed mind is the difference between a saved person and an unsaved person. I'm not telling you that. The Bible does not teach that. Paul is not saying, and God is not saying, and I am not saying that real Christians, real Christians have a renewed mind. And so if there's people that have the debased mind, they might say they're Christians, but they're not actually real Christians. I'm not saying that. The Bible teaches, and Paul is warning us against this, that it is entirely possible to be a saved believer in Jesus Christ, and then to live your life outside as though that weren't the case. Paul calls it being conformed to this world. He's warning the Roman church against it. He's warning us against it this morning. So if he's not making a contrast then between saved people and unsaved people, then what's the danger in being conformed to the world? What does it matter? What's the benefit of having the renewed mind and not being conformed to the world. If we're not talking about heaven and hell here, if we're not talking about saved versus not saved, then what's the danger? What's at stake? I think there's a really obvious answer, and then there's a more subtle answer. The obvious answer is that when we think the way the world thinks, we turn around and behave the way the world behaves. And so if, if we are cultivating a worthless mind, Paul's already outlined what kind of stuff comes out from a worthless mind. It's stuff that hurts people. It's stuff that, I mean, we hurt ourselves. And very importantly, it's stuff that hurts the name of Christ. And it hurts the witness and the testimony of Christ in the world. That's the obvious answer. But there's another reason that being conformed to the world's way of thinking is very, very dangerous. It's subtle, but it's there. The more subtle danger is if you allow yourself to be conformed to the world's way of thinking, then you'll be useless in the kingdom of God. You'll be useless in the kingdom of God. And at the end of your life, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for your life, you'll show up at that moment empty-handed with nothing to show for the life he gave you. Understanding the judgment seat of Christ is really critical to understanding Paul's theology. He mentions this moment over and over and over and over again in his letters in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3. He mentions this moment in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Timothy, and yeah, even in Romans, two chapters later than where we are in verse, uh, verses 10 and following. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? 
or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The Bible is really, really clear that when our life on this planet is over, there's going to be a moment and we will stand before Christ one by one and he'll evaluate our life. And it's not a judgment of believers and non-believers. It's not a judgment for heaven and hell. It's not a judgment of punishment for sin, because Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. That's not what's at stake in this judgment. In this evaluative moment at the judgment seat of Christ, he will examine our life, and he'll evaluate it, and the basis, and that evaluation forms the basis for rewards that we'll receive in the life to come and for the kinds of responsibilities that we'll be entrusted with in the life to come. And that reality keeps me up at night sometimes. Because I know that I'll have to stand face to face with my Savior who gave his life for me and who showed me such incredible mercy and such incredible compassion, and I'll look him in the eye, and I'll give an account of how I stewarded the life on this earth that he entrusted to me. And I want to have something to show for the life that he's given me. I don't want to have to tell him that I wasted my life on this earth because I was conformed to the world. I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what that moment is about. I want to be able to say that I was transformed. I think that's what he wants for us. I think that's what Paul wants for us too. He says, be transformed, verse 2, by the renewal of your mind. And this is really, really important. He says that the transformation is the byproduct of the renewed mind. If Paul had, had simply said, don't be conformed to the world, but live a transformed life then what would happen is that our like, self-justifying, twisted little hearts would just take that to mean, hey, take your old sinful to-do list of the flesh and chuck that, and then you need to write a new to-do list of holiness and righteousness and then do that stuff. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He says the transformed life is the product of a renewed mind. It all flows from the inside out. The worthless mind bears its fruit on the outside. The renewed mind bears its fruit of transformation on the outside. So here's something you need to understand this morning. God's will for your life has way more to do with who you are and with who you are becoming than specifically what you do in life. God values the inner life because the outer life flows from the inner life. So that's why Paul doesn't just give us a new to-do list of good stuff. He says it all starts in, with the renewing of the mind. Think of all the ways that Jesus spoke about the relationship between the inner life and the outer life. I found three in the book of Matthew. And incidentally, incidentally, he's talking to the Pharisees in all three examples. So he's talking to religious people. Matthew 12, he says to the Pharisees, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person... Out of his good treasure, that's the inner life, brings forth good in the outer life. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, inner life, brings forth 
evil, outer light. When the Pharisees questioned him in Matthew 15 about why the disciples didn't perform the ritual hand-washing before they ate a meal, Jesus answers them. He says, it's not what goes into a person's mouth that defiles him, but what comes out of the mouth of a man defiles a man. And in Matthew 23, in the middle of just an absolute, I mean, Jesus is like taking the Pharisees to the woodshed in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites. Listen really closely. He says, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. He says, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside will likewise be clean. What the Lord wants for us is to be renewed in our minds and in our thinking so that the service we offer to him in our outer life will be the overflow of our devotion to him and gratitude to him in our inner life. And the result will be that we'll be effective workers in his kingdom during our time here on earth and that we will receive rewards and be entrusted with responsibilities in the life to come. So how's that accomplished? We've got the marching orders. Be transformed by the renewal of the mind. He's told us and we understand what's at stake when it comes to that. So how is that accomplished? If that's the objective then how does the renewing of the mind happen? What's my role in it? Is there something that I have to do? Is there something that I have to participate in? What difference does this make in my life? I think the first point of order in figuring out how the renewal of the mind works is for us to look at that word renewal. Uh, The Greek word is uh, anakinosis. We need to find every other instance of that Greek word in the New Testament, and consult the meaning from those passages to help us understand this passage. And fortunately, I've already done that work. Um, And fortunately for me, there's only one other time that it appears in the New Testament. So it's Titus 3, verse 4 and following. It says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal, there's our word, renewal by the Holy Spirit. So there's at least part of our answer. The Holy Spirit empowers the renewal of the mind. He enables the renewal of the mind. It does not happen apart from his involvement. No Holy Spirit, no renewal of the mind. There's a really great moment in Acts 19. Um, It always kind of makes me chuckle. Man, sometimes you just read Acts and just the craziest stuff happens. And what happens in Acts 19 is that, like, Paul rolls up into Ephesus and he meets some disciples there who had come to faith before he got there. And so he's going to team up with them to do some ministry to reach the city of Ephesus. And he asks them, and he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say back to him, they're like, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. We'd never heard of the Holy Spirit. And it makes you scratch your head, but I wonder if there aren't a lot of American Christians who are kind of like those Ephesian Christians that Paul met who have just no relationship with the Holy Spirit. I think he gets left out of the lives of a lot of Christians. I think a lot of people just, they, we do not access his power because we don't understand how he works. 
I mean, he doesn't get a lot of airtime in our conversations. I'm trying to think of the last time that I had a conversation about the Holy Spirit with somebody. I can't even remember. He gets one throwaway line in the Apostles' Creed. I mean, I'm not ragging on the creed, but like, you know, God gets his part, Jesus gets the part. I also believe in the Holy Spirit and all of this other stuff. We don't, man, we got to figure out the Holy Spirit. We've got to keep in step with the Spirit. We need to access his power. So, and I'm going to ask some questions, some challenging questions this morning. It's not to put guilt on you or anything like that. It's just some evaluative questions. How well do you know the Holy Spirit? Do you understand the Holy Spirit's role in your spiritual life? Do you see evidence of the Holy Spirit's power in your life? Um, so if you don't understand the role of the Holy Spirit, there's no shame in that whatsoever. But there's an opportunity for growth. And so if you want to learn more about the Holy Spirit, there are some great books you could read. Uh, Ryrie's book, The Holy Spirit is Good. Tony Evans's book, The Promise, is really, really good. The one that I'll commend to you probably most and first this morning is uh, Charles Swindoll's book, Flying Closer to the Flame. I read this book the, the year after I graduated college, and it was so transformational for me. I kind of realized that, man, I'd like lived my whole Christian life up to that point with like zero dependence on the Holy Spirit. I had no relationship with a whole part of the Godhead. I had basically like kicked the Holy Spirit out of the Trinity, and I put Paul in there. Because Paul is like easier to relate to, he's a little bit easier to understand. Man, we got, we've got to be accessing the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if you want to learn more about that, Flying Closer to the Flame, Chuck Swindoll is a great resource. Uh, I want to talk real quick, and then we'll be done, about just one way that we can really practically engage with the Holy Spirit this week. Um, in Galatians 3, Paul asks a question. He says, does he who provides the Holy Spirit to you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Does he who provides the Spirit to you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? There's an implied answer to that question, right? Hearing with faith. Hearing what? Hearing the Word of God. We are transformed by renewal of the mind when we are consistently interacting with God's Word and when we're allowing it to shape the way that we think and the way that we understand. We're transformed by renewal of the mind when we're committed to reading it and to studying it, and to meditating on it, and memorizing it, and most importantly, most importantly, when we're committed to obeying it, and when we're committed to actually letting it have some effect on our life. So some more evaluative questions. Again, not to lay guilt on you, but just to establish some markers for where we are. How consistently are you engaging with God through studying his word? How consistently are you accessing the power of the Bible? Are you studying the Bible? Are you memorizing Scripture? Because the consistency, I think, the consistency with which you spend time in God's Word and with, with which you apply it to your life is probably one of the best indicators as to whether or not your mind is being renewed and whether or not you're in this process and whether or not you're pointed in that direction. Because it's one thing to show up on Sunday mornings and just hear somebody teach you the Bible. It's another thing to access the power of God for yourself. I mean, that was what kicked off the entire Protestant Reformation. That's our heritage. We don't need someone to tell us what God says. Because what God says is available to us in a language that we can read and understand 
and work out into our life. So one of my challenges to you this week is just to spend 30 minutes a day, every day, reading God's Word and figuring out how to apply it to your life. That's nothing. 30 minutes a day. If you add it up, that's three and a half hours over the course of a week. But here's what I know, is that even now, right as I made that suggestion, 30 hours a day, every day, some of you in this room, in your mind, your first reaction that fast was, nah, I'm good. I'm not going to do that. Someone else might do that. I'm not going to do that. And in your mind, you did some kind of rationalization thing where you figured out a good excuse or a good reason why not to, or it just didn't appeal to you at all. So if that's you, I want to ask you, what's the source of that resistance? Where's that coming from? It's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't want you to be resistant to engaging with God's Word. Whose voice is it? Whose voice is in your head who's discouraging you from hearing from the God of the universe? We can't let that voice win. Because that voice, that voice wants you conformed to the pattern of this world. That voice wants you to have a worthless mind. And that voice wants your Bible collecting dust on the shelf. Because he knows that when we are accessing the power of God's word and the Holy Spirit is speaking to us off the page, that we're in the process of renewing our minds and being transformed for effective service in the kingdom of God in this world. So there might be some of you this morning, you want to study your Bible, but you just don't know how to. Um, I know that Bible study can be really intimidating sometimes for people. The Bible can be really confusing sometimes. Sometimes you just don't know how to start, um, and you don't know a process. I mean, people go to, like, seminary and grad school and Bible college and all kinds of stuff to learn how to study the Bible, and so sometimes it can seem so daunting a task. I just want to tell you, if the reason that you're, like, hesitant or a little bit resistant to Bible study is that you feel unequipped, then get with me after this and give me your email address, and I would love to just throw resource after resource after resource into your inbox. I'll give you study tools. I'll give you interpretive tools. I'll give you memorization tools. Um, I will give you uh, everything I think that you need in order to be able to do this for yourself and to study the Bible. There is nothing more that I, that I love in life than helping people understand the Bible and how to apply it in their life. So I would love to empower you that way, just with resources that are either free or cheap. So there's not a whole huge investment in terms of the finances, but it's an incredible investment in terms of eternity. Uh, let's wrap it up. Second Peter tells us, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Second Peter tells us that. He's given us every resource that we need to live a transformed life. It starts with the baseline and the foundation of mercy. It starts with just the incredible freedom that we have to pursue life with God and with other people without having to fear the wrath of God for sin, without having to fear punishment, 
for sin. That's the baseline. But he's also shown us mercy in this way. And this, especially for us as American people in this room, he's shown us mercy by empowering us with his Holy Spirit and by giving us access to that power. He's shown us mercy by giving us the ability to read Scripture in a language that we can understand and in a language that we speak without any kind of fear of being thrown in prison or of having hands cut off or of being killed just for possessing a Bible. He has shown us so much mercy, and he has placed us in such a prime location to be able to live the transformed life that he's urging us to live. It all starts with renewing of the mind, and he's going to be with us every step of the way as we pursue it. I think that's his promise to us this morning, so I hope you'll be encouraged by that. Um, and challenge as well. Let's pray together, and then we'll approach the Lord's table. God, I want us to be encouraged this morning. I know you want that. It can seem like uh, a real daunting task to pursue the transformed life, to pursue the renewal of the mind. God, I I, I pray that we would just be encouraged. I pray that we would uh, be strengthened by the grace that you've shown us. I pray that we would be challenged as we listen to the Holy Spirit, as we learn to interact with him, as we try and keep in step with him, and as we open the pages of Scripture. I pray that you would speak to us and that you would move in powerful, powerful ways. I believe you've promised to do that. And so we trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.